The views and opinions of this program are those of its host and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of 90.1 FM, KKFI, Midcoast Radio Project, or its staff and volunteers. Gratitude goes out to you today for listening to Eco Radio KC on 90.1 FM KKFI Kansas City Community Radio. This is a locally made exploration into positive solutions to some of today's ecological challenges for all of us working to create a healthier future for our communities and for the world you live in. KFI listeners, this is David Barsamian of Alternative Radio. Beginning January 24th, AR is moving to Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Don't miss a single edition of Alternative Radio at 90.1 FM on your dial and kkfi.org. And thanks for supporting Community Radio KKFI. KKFI is moving into the future with our very own mobile app for smartphones and mobile devices. Stay connected to the live broadcast, music playlists, podcasts, and so much more by downloading the KKFI mobile app to your device today. Thanks for listening to Eco Radio KC. My name is Darnell. Today on Eco Radio KC, please tune in and listen to the most recent Climate Hour produced by Bob Grohl, How to Make Higher Education Work for Climate Change, with his guest Sarah Johnson, founder of Wild Rose Education, Shannon O'Lear, professor of geography and director of the Environmental Studies Program at Kansas University, and Sherry L. Wilson, founder and teaching ecologist at Project Central. How do we prepare our college and university graduates to understand, survive, and even prosper in this age of climate change? Some of this is expanding science degrees to address climate-related issues, but most of it is incorporating climate-related issues into all subjects, cross-cutting education to address the climate change we're experiencing today and a climate reality that our graduates will face tomorrow. The United Nations is calling for climate change studies to be a formal part of all curriculums and all schools by 2025. Climate change is becoming core curriculum around the world. Eco Radio is glad to encourage awareness and protection of our world. Our goal is to ensure our listeners are aware of how we can create a sustainable present for a sustainable future. This will be a great radio hour. We support the work for a future in which humans flourish as members of a thriving ecosphere. We are all in this together, and it will take all of us to make the world safe for human habitation for millennia to come. This will be a great radio hour. Now, our show. Welcome to the Climate Hour. I'm your host, Bob Grove. Today, we're going to talk about higher education on climate change. You know, several months ago, we did a broadcast on teaching children about climate change, and we had a strong reaction to that show, both positive and negative. One of the questions that kept coming up was how do adults learn about climate change? Obviously, there's lots of books and workshops on the subject, but the questions seem more focused on higher education. So what are colleges and universities doing to prepare the next generation to understand and react to what is arguably the most significant change in today's society? How do we prepare our higher education graduates to understand, survive, and even prosper in this age of climate change? Some of this is expanding science programs to address climate-related issues, but most of it is incorporating climate-related issues into all subjects, cross-cutting education to address the climate change we're experiencing today and the climate reality that our graduates will face tomorrow. How is higher education evolving to stay relevant to a climate-changed world? The United Nations is calling for climate change studies to be a formal part of all curriculums in all schools by 2025. The Royal Institute of British Architects, for example, has recently published a new climate framework, which makes climate literacy components mandatory across its 109 accredited schools in 23 countries. 
The International Union of Peer and Applied Chemistry has launched the project to reorient chemistry education globally towards sustainability. Climate change is becoming a core curriculum around the world. In the U.S., unfortunately, it continues to be a political football. We're joined today on Zoom by Sarah Johnson, founder of Wild Rose Education. Hi, Sarah. Hello, Bob. Thanks for having me. Shannon O'Lear is professor of geography and director of the environmental studies program at Kansas University. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. And Sherry Wilson, founder and teaching ecologist at Project Central. Hi, Sherry. Hi, Bob. Great to see you and uh, glad to be here today. I'd like to start by just going around the room and asking each of you, what is the current state of climate education in U.S. colleges and universities? Shannon, would you like to start? Sure. I don't know if I can give the full 30,000-foot view. I think it's a little tricky at this political moment to be talking about things related to climate change because it does bring up uh, a lot of different hot-button issues. However, I think a lot of students are coming to college with some awareness, um, partial anyway, and certainly with some anxiety. So I think there's a lot of work that, that can be done and a lot of listening that we need to do. Sherry, what are your thoughts on the current state of climate education? I agree with Shannon. I, I think that things are changing and changing throughout the world, really, uh, from a lot of the places that I work with in other countries. There's definite interest, especially from young people in what's going on with the climate and how it's going to impact their futures. And I don't think that the uh, curriculum and the um, expectations of our education systems are keeping up with that concern. And even the knowledge that young people are bringing to their college careers and so I, I think there's work to be done and there's opportunity as well to make these young people more a part of their own educations. Sarah, what are your thoughts? Well, I would build on what both Sharon and Sherry just shared and just say that, you know, climate education, there's a struggle to figure out in which discipline it fits into exactly if we're looking specifically at climate change, because climate change is, it's a not just a science issue, because if it was, we would have solved it you know, 20 years ago, but it's really a people issue. So there's, I've been in recent conversations with university faculty and university leaders here in Colorado, as well as others around the country, just with this kind of tension and struggle of where do we put climate studies in which, which academic field of study. But I would also argue that it shouldn't be a standalone study, field of study. I think that climate change specifically climate justice should be a lens that many different subjects are taught through. And so it's not just like its own certificate program or minor or even a major, um, but it's more of a, it's a worldview. It's a way we teach. It's a way we are become citizens of the world. And so I think there are some people in the university systems who are thinking that way and really desire that, but to figure out how to do that institutionally and systematically and to really um, formalize something like that. We're all in a, it's all a moving target as we speak. Um, but I would say that there are very strong climate science programs in many public universities and private universities across the country. We can, we see evidence of that in many, especially the research institutions. So there is climate science happening and has been happening for a very long time. So we have to make that distinction as well. Sure. I think you work internationally. I mean, you see both the U.S. education system and education systems in other countries. Do you see that other countries are different than the U.S. when it comes to climate science? Well, I'm not so sure about when it comes to climate science, because I think, as Sarah was saying, that's that's pretty strong here in the U.S. as well. And even, in, and I'm sure Shannon can speak to this uh, more, but um, even, even in the Midwest, um, we're yeah, our science programs are, are starting to do more research in this area as we see the climate issues start to impact our economies, uh, agriculture being a big one, and water issues with drought and then floods. And so we're seeing these, these issues start to impact us all over the world. And so we're starting to study it more kind of where we live. 
what I would say is a little bit different in, in some of the places I've been is, as Sarah said, more of the people side and how we look at things uh, such as equity and social justice and how regular people, if you will, are being impacted, um, maybe meaning people who don't have as strong of a voice and who don't have the resources to extend their voices or to actually act in ways that can help them become more resilient on their own. Uh, I think we're starting to move in that direction here in the U.S., and there are some examples of that for sure, but I think some other places are ahead of us in that in that area. And I would add to that that we are starting to more collectively talk about climate as an intersectional issue, <laughs> climate change, climate justice, global warming as intersectional. It's an intersectional issue, meaning that it's only um, amplifying all these other social and environmental issues that have been problematic for a very long time. And so whether that's poverty or racism or LGBTQ rights or uh, all, I mean, the list is big. And so um, access to housing, access to clean air, I mean, the list, the list is so big. And so we see climate, climate change as we dig into the, um, and start to really unpack and understand how climate change is really affecting all people and all people are part of the solutions as well, but it's it's a very intersectional issue, and so it cannot be isolated to one university center or department. It really has to be part of health and wellness and everything else. So we're talking a lot about the people involved here, and obviously at the end of the day, it is about people involvement. Let's talk about teachers. I mean, obviously the teachers are the ones that are driving the curriculum, driving the education within the limits of policy, of course, and we'll talk about policy later. But, you know, let's talk about teachers. You know, are they prepared? Are the U.S. teachers prepared to provide climate education? I know, Sarah, you suggested that most teachers aren't getting enough training. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and I would I would push a little bit against what you just said, that teachers are controlling okay. what they're teaching and just say that actually that's true in very small cases, maybe in the very small rural school where people have a lot of autonomy <laughs> or okay. in the charter in private schools in certain places. But I think in general, um, really who's controlling that con- curriculum and that what happens at, with, uh, with, how, with what gets taught is really a with the public school system is really at the state level and then is figured out at the school district level by school boards and curriculum leaders and school leaders. And then teachers are, you know, have to teach, they have to make sure that those, those, their students learn those, those, that curriculum, those academic standards, et cetera. But they have some, they have a lot of agency on how they teach those things. A lot, a lot of the time, not always. And what I have been seeing and hearing from the national all the way to the, the local level is that students are demanding climate change education at humongous high percentages across the country. It doesn't matter what their parents' um, political views are. Students are, they're demanding climate change education in all different ways. And teachers, the majority of teachers know that and value climate change education and want to teach because they, teachers are some of the best, have some of the strongest amounts of hope in the world. I mean, they're, they're teachers, they're, they believe in a future. And so they, they want to teach, and these are big generalities, so there's going to be things you could poke holes in this, but teachers want to teach about climate change. But where the complication gets is that school boards and communities and squeaky wheels in communities are making it very challenging for teachers to choose to teach about climate change because they're at risk of losing their jobs because somebody on that school board is such a loud minority (laughs) of voice that they are making it risky for a teacher to potentially lose their job for teaching about climate change. And so it's this very messy, it's a very messy system right now. And I think it's a privilege to have to be for a teacher to be able to take the risk to put their job on the line. And not every teacher has that kind of privilege. And so Climate change edu- um, is not a primary science topic in Colorado teacher programs, as far as like pr- university programs that are preparing people to be teachers. It's not, it's not a primary piece of higher education in, in that way. 
but it is written, climate change is written into the next generation science standards. So, but that's more of the, the climate science and less of the climate justice. So it's a complex web of navigating to try to navigate. Shannon, what are your thoughts? Are our current teachers um, ready to teach climate education? Well, I don't do a lot of training of teachers, so I don't know as much as Sarah does uh, about this topic. I think the students that I see coming in, as I said, a lot of them are really interested. Granted, they probably self-select into my classes. I teach a lot of environmental studies students, so I think a lot of those students are already thinking this way. They want to know more. They want to get involved. And they connect it to everything, whether it's sort of as Sarah was saying, it's connected. They see the connections all over the place. Um, are they prepared to teach? That that I don't know. I should I should go talk to somebody over in my school of education and see what they're doing uh, as far as teaching uh, on climate change. That would be really an interesting question. Well, and I can add to that a little bit more um, because it hasn't been part of this regular higher education system for training teachers to become teachers. Uh, there are there are many, well, not many. There are a few rising climate education organizations around the country, and some are actually international to to really support educators. So, such as Climate Generation has the Teach Climate Network based out of Minneapolis, Minnesota or Subject to Climate is a fantastic website for teachers to go find resources to help them integrate this into all subjects of their teaching. And and there's many others. Um, the Climate Initiative, I was just reading and seeing some of their brand new resources for teachers. So there's a gap. And so these nonprofits and sometimes federal agencies like NOAA um, are, and NASA are providing, and, and others are providing resources and tools to help fill this gap but it is still like an optional thing for teachers to reach out for those that support and those tools. And so that the motivated, experienced, a lot of times it's experienced teachers, or maybe it's the early career teachers who just know how important it is. It's kind of both of those two big groups um, are, are seeking out all these tools to do a better, to be able to do the job really well. Um, but it's not formalized. It's not systemic. It's not it's, it's optional still for a lot of these teachers. And many of them don't feel like they have enough resources and time because for them to reach out and get all those tools and training that are optional, they have to spend their own time and their own money. Teachers' professional development is not paid time for them most of the time. Unlike many other professions where professional development is just part of your salary job. So they have to really want to do this from a place of passion and love Sherry, what are your thoughts on teachers teaching climate? Do they have the resources they need? I don't think they do. Uh, I think there's, and part of this, it's just a lot of things kind of coming together. Uh, there's still such an emphasis on reading and math. And with losing so much time during COVID when the schools were closed and doing things online, you know, kids are really far behind in many cases in those two subject areas and schools in the US. And I just came back from an international conference in Brazil focused on using natural uh, school grounds as play spaces and learning spaces for kids. And climate change was the theme running through the entire conference. And the situation with, um, Students being falling behind during COVID is international. It's everywhere around the world. And there's a lot of concern about that. And so I think that is the focus of most schools and teachers and parents and school boards and pretty much everybody right now. And so I, I think to get climate change education more into schools, we're going to have to do what we've done with environmental education for decades, and that is show how you can teach these concepts through reading, through math, through art, which I do a lot of with, with partners, through other subject areas. And thankfully, it's a, it's a, it's a topic that you can do that with uh, and, and pretty easily. It's pretty easy to infuse climate topics throughout the curriculum, um, no matter what subject area you're talking about. 
but teachers need the resources to do that. And they don't have a lot of time to find them on their own, even though they would like to, and their students of all age groups would be really interested in, in learning about, about these topics. And at the higher education level, I think it's much the same in that it, it could be possible to infuse climate topics and concepts throughout uh, university and community college courses. And there are efforts to do that. And there's a lot of interest internationally in doing that. It means kind of transforming to a certain degree your curriculum, but you don't have to completely overhaul it. Um, and I know that some universities, uh, for example, Southern New Hampshire University, they've, they've recently taken a look at their curriculum and kind of revamped it for current competencies that they, they feel their students should have. And climate education is one of those. They've actually created a new general education course that focuses on on the climate. And so as a general education course, that means that hundreds of students will be taking this class, which I think is really important. It shouldn't only be the students who are interested in learning about these issues or the students who are required because of their course of study that they need this knowledge. So therefore they need to take the, these classes about mm -hmm. climate. Uh, it should be all students that need this information. They need this knowledge and they need the, the hope and possibility that can be offered through, um, you know, these are things that we can do about this. And you are the next um, wave that of attempts to help us, you know, figure out a way uh, forward. And so giving some agency and supporting students in that agency, I think is really quite vital because there are, there's a lot of anxiety and doom and gloom feeling about the climate situation right now with, with many people, but especially with young people. Now we're touching on that idea of cross-cutting cross education and including climate lessons in all of our core curriculum, English, math, there's climate aspects, all of that. Um, working towards an education system that includes climate systemically throughout the entire education, instead of creating a niche degree over here for those that are interested. I mean, how important do you think that is? Shannon? Well, actually, I was thinking about what Sarah was saying earlier about how, because, and what Shari was saying about how, since it's all over the place, maybe it's hard to get climate change into, like, teaching standards because there's not like one one area that can own it and set standards and say this is what we should be teaching or this is what the expectations are and I don't know if either of them have thoughts on this if maybe that's what's limiting getting this more into teaching the teachers and um, that kind of uh, educational training but one thing I thought of um, Sherry while you were talking and, and something I was working with in one of my classes uh, there's a, a fabulous website called goodenergystories.com, the playbook. And this is sort of a guideline. Maybe you all have heard of this. This is a guideline for Hollywood screenwriters. You don't have to have a movie like The Day After Tomorrow or whatever that one was where the earth was, it was all about climate change and the earth froze like almost instantaneously and it was so dramatic. But this website is about how do you weave climate change into like some of the character development into the background. Like it doesn't have to be like the main thing of the movie, but it could be kind of built into the fabric because it's just like all of us. It's in our lives. It's in the background. It's in the ground we're walking on. And so I had my class look at this website, like think of how you would want to get this into something that you were writing. And I think it's that kind of thinking, as, as Sherry was saying, that it, once we weave it through like all these different disciplines and people can see how it's all connected, that it isn't just the science, that it's the society, it's politics, it's culture, it's the economy. Um, I think that's where it's going to get maybe more traction. And I work with young people regularly and I've helped them think about their future and what types of jobs they want to have and, and think about what they're good at and what they're passionate about. And, and then try to think about what, how they could use their talent and their passion and what they're made for 
to do good for the world. And, and they're, and they're like, but I want to work on climate. Don't I have to be an environmental scientist to, to do in climate work? And I'm like, absolutely not. <laughs> the climate movement, the climate work needs doctors and teachers and accountants and bookkeep and um, graphic designers and lawyers and electricians and plumbers and bus drivers. And the list goes on and on. Every job can be a climate job because it's a lens from which all of those jobs happen. And so that in itself is a narrative that I think going along with storytelling with what Shannon was just saying is shifting the narrative, shifting the worldview. And this not just for students, but it takes, it has to happen at a community level because it's the parents, it's the grandparents, it's the teachers, it's the, it's everybody. And it's at a community level. And what is the narrative around what is climate education? And once that narrative can start shifting in a more positive light of, of like, everybody's part of this and we do have the solutions and look at how much we've already done and let's look at the history of how far we've come it becomes a story that more people want to be part of and start to see themselves in and it's more equitable and inclusive and there's many people right now working on this and thinking about this it's not just my good idea and but so when that narrative starts to shift and it's woven into the fabric of everything using some of your words there, Shannon, um, it's an educational system that's shifting as well. And that is when we get, that's what gives me hope. And that's because people are working towards that in small ways. And hopefully that will take flight in, um, sooner than later in a more broader perspective and broader geography and so forth. You're listening to the Climate Hour. I'm your host, Bob Grove. We're speaking with Shannon O'Lear, Sherry Wilson, and Sarah Johnson about higher education on climate change. This is Maria Vasquez-Boyd, producer and host of Artspeak Radio. Starting Wednesday, January 24th, Artspeak Radio will air from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. We'll continue our mission to bring you the best in the art world. Tune in to Artspeak Radio, 9 a.m. to 10 a.m., only on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. Hi, this is Diana Lynn, host of the Tasty Brew Music Radio Show and Siren Song here on KKFI. Our pledge drive will be starting soon, and we need volunteers for our phone bank. You can participate remotely or by coming into the station. All phone bank volunteers must be comfortable talking to donors on the phone and entering pledges on the computer. In addition, remote phone bank volunteers will need a reliable internet connection and a computer with a microphone and speakers. Sign up for a shift today at kkfi.org slash phone bank. Or for more information, contact our volunteer coordinator at 816-994-7864. Puzzled by the news? Wanting to learn more? Understanding Israel-Palestine airs every Friday at 9.30 a.m. Locally produced but focused on national and international events, the hosts of UIP interview scholars, journalists, activists, and others about the ongoing conflict in Israel-Palestine. Once again, that's Understanding Israel-Palestine every Friday morning at 9.30 a.m. on KKFI. Do you love community radio and believe in KKFI's mission? Would you like to serve your community by helping lead KKFI into the future? KKFI is always looking for leaders from the Kansas City community to join and help our board of directors. Express your interest by applying to be a volunteer at kkfi.org volunteer. Together, we can shape the future of Kansas City Community Radio. You're listening to the Climate Hour. I'm your host, Bob Grove. We're speaking with Shannon O'Lear, Sherry Wilson, and Sarah Johnson about higher education on climate change. Uh, Shannon, you're a professor of geography. How does geography provide a useful way to look at climate change? I love this question because most people, when I tell them, you know, if I'm sitting on an airplane or something, oh, what do you do? And if I say I'm a geographer, there's always this awkward pause. People are trying to figure out how have I made a career out of state capitals or something like that. But that's not what we do. Uh, geography is, it's a discipline that is looking at 
pattern process in place. It's a discipline that is synthesizing and bridging a lot of other disciplines. So we have everything from, you know, people who wear hip waders and are measuring streams to people who are wearing black turtlenecks and doing critical theory. So it's sort of everything in between. And uh, geography, especially in my department, we have atmospheric science as part of our department and we have geographers. And that brings together both the physical science or the natural science or however you want to label the sciencey science. And it brings together the, the human side of things. I'm a political geographer and I teach a lot about climate change. And I think that's really important that students see that the political dimensions or the social dimensions. And we bring that together. Why does that matter? Because you can't silo the science from the society that's creating the science and using the science. And I think we've, we've done a bit of a disservice because we tend to think of climate in terms of the science and the language of physics and that it's kind of out there and abstract and we're not really grounding it in how do we then translate that or operationalize that into policy, into society. Everybody knows what the problem is, but we don't seem to have any uh, or enough traction on how to really move forward with solutions and somewhere in there, we're not having the right conversations about the policies or the decision-making or what our values and priorities are. Sure. You've talked about the um, importance of, of policy incorporating climate resilience management into the campus curriculum. Can you talk about that? Yes, I, I think policy is an absolutely critical part of incorporating, implementing climate resilience uh, climate change concepts, not just into the curriculum, but into the practices of operating a school campus. And as we're kind of going through this transition time where we're, our institutions are trying to figure out, well, what does that mean? You know, what does it mean to operate our buildings, our grounds uh, in a more climate friendly or climate resilient way? And everyone's looking at budgets and uh, the people power to do these things. Um, the policy part is really important. There are grants for a lot of these changes. And there's a lot of federal money out there right now for different climate projects. And certainly universities and school districts are eligible for some of those funds. But one, as I, I've experienced, and maybe some of my colleagues here as well, you can get grants for things, but once the grant money's gone and that technical resource person that's helping you do that grant, once they go away, a lot of times all those practices that you implemented, they also go away. And it's often without any analysis at all about whether, well, if we kept doing this, could we actually save money, uh, even if we didn't have grant funding? So there's a lot more of these kinds of things that need to need to be happening. This analysis of uh, could we save money if we reduce the amount of grass on our campuses and, you know, turned a good portion of that ground over to habitat areas and we didn't have to mow anymore. So we don't have that expense. We don't have the air pollution, the noise pollution that impacts the health of that person doing that job. That person could be doing something else instead that needs to be done. And so we need to be doing these cost benefit analyses from a viewpoint that doesn't, that includes the money because obviously the money's important. We're not going to get away from that. But looking at health, looking at optimizing labor, just looking at the well-being of our students and the other beings, the plants and animals that we share this planet with, and in, could we increase biodiversity on our school campuses? There are so many of them throughout the world. There's thousands and millions of acres of land that's currently being mowed, and could we do something different? Could we do something different and be healthier save money, you know, less air pollution, less water pollution, less water needed. Uh, that's important too. Can we just kind of look at things in a different way? And there's a really great resource um, looking at the circular economy 
and some wonderful graphics that I really love uh, called Donut Economics. And uh, Kate Rayworth is the, the author and she's done a, a great TED talk. And, um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a really interesting and fairly easy to understand way of looking at our resources and how we're utilizing them. And, and you can envision some other possibilities. And I think we really need to start doing that. And then we need to start taking these results of our analyses on our best practices and putting them into policy so that we're saying as a school board, as a board of regents or uh, whatever your college, university, school district governing body is to say, this is how we do business here now. We, we have habitat gardens, we, we have food waste composting, or, or we at least collect our food waste for composting. Maybe someone comes and picks it up and they do the composting. But these are practices that we have and they're in our policy. We're not going to change them. This is how we do business now. And pretty soon, this is how we always did it. And we don't even know that we did it any other way. Any. And I feel like that's what we need to, to try to get to. And you have, I believe through my own experience, you have to have the policies in place so that everybody implementing things on the campus knows this is what we're doing. And I just think that's, we, we need to get to that. You're talking about teaching by example. I think that's a wonderful concept. And the idea that our campuses are showing you how to live sustainably and you just take that home with you automatically. Sarah, you've proposed an environmental action civics approach to teaching young people to advocate for climate issues. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so there's actually a continental organization called the North American Association for Environmental Education, and as well as another organization called Earth Force. And together they have, EarthForce primarily has uh, brought up, um, has really amplified this idea of environmental action civics. And I was just this morning spending a lot of time thinking about how he's going to do this environmental action civics with fifth and sixth graders in my local community here. And um, so the idea is that we're teaching the skills of of civics and action civics to our students. Because for a long time, we've, well, public schools were founded on the idea of creating citizens that actually knew how to participate in democracy a long time ago, many hundred, you know, a few hundred years ago. And today, those that's not exactly always the priority of our public school systems. And so there's all kinds of strategies to improve this. But one is this environmental action civics. And the idea is that we're teaching them the process of issue investigation. So and, and it's very place specific, like community based, like it could be the school community, it could be the neighborhood, it could be the county, but very community based. And having students learn about how do you take an inventory of the what's working and what could be better? And how do you listen to the elders and do community interviews and really understand the context? And then how do you zoom in and understand all the different parts and pieces of an, of the issue, whether it's the river is drying up, um, there's a trash problem, there's an air quality problem, whatever it is the students decide is the problem, is the issue they want to look for. So it's a very student-driven process. And they're learning about all these different possible stakeholders and perspectives and realizing that no issue is either or, or both sides of the story. They're like, the table is very round and there's so many different perspectives. And as you get to learn those perspectives, you realize the table has to get bigger because there has to be more chairs because there's more perspectives. And then they learn, they come up with a call to action of, you know, after learning all this, we believe that the, the health department should be paying much closer attention to microplastics in our water, whatever, the, whatever it is that they're concerned about. And so they figure out how to communicate with the health department, whether that's a county or state or which whoever's the right entity that control that is the, would control that from a policy perspective. And then they communicate with them and they go visit their offices and, and learn this whole process of being a civically engaged citizen of their community. And that work, I haven't met very many people that don't want to get, don't want to be part of that. It's pretty exciting work. And what happens is that they're also also teaching, what kids are learning at school a lot of times also teaches their families and the parents. And so I think there's a ripple effect of this work. And 
we know that with climate with climate change, if we're going to teach about climate change, we need to be not only in teaching about climate justice, but we need to be teaching climates how to participate in climate solutions. And those climate solutions need to be both individual actions, but primarily collective collective actions, because that's the only thing that's actually going to change the world is collective action. Um, and and so this these processes of environmental action civics are really supporting the how. How do you do that? How do you? What are these ways of being as an as an individual, as a leader, as a as a, as a citizen? Um, ways of thinking, problem solving skills, collaboration skills, organizing skills. Those aren't necessarily in the academic standards in higher education or in K twelve education. But I believe, and many others do, that if we're really teaching, if the whole system of education is going to address climate change, we are going to have to have a transformation in what we're teaching and probably memorizing the geologic time scale like I did in college and all the fossils of the entire 4.6 billion years was probably not the most important thing I did in college but perhaps maybe I should have been learning the skills of organizing and 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 collaborating and learning how to take action in my community so that's what I'm very excited about this work and I've been really engaged in it in the last five years and or maybe longer, more like 10 years. It's been really, really powerful. I keep coming back to this idea of cross-cutting education, that climate's something that we need broadly throughout everything, whether it's advocacy. I mean, it's not just science. Shannon, I think you touched on, you mentioned something about the the language of, of climate change. I mean, the language of physics, climate change, global warming, greenhouse gas emissions, that's also physical. Do you think the language is limiting our ability to put climate across all education? Well, absolutely. And the very fact that we all have agreed on the label climate change, you know, back, I think it was in the 80s or 90s, it's a bit of a blur now, but, you know, for a while it was global warming. And then uh, you can trace it back to a, a particular PR campaign where it's like, oh, that might not be the best word. Let's call it climate change. We don't want to say how oh, it's changing, but, you know, let's not get too uh, alarmist about it. But we've there's been other ideas floated like, climate chaos or climate weirdness or, you know, there's like lots of different ways that we could take it apart and look at it. Uh, you know, what, what exactly is it? So climate change is sort of like we've, we've all kind of jumped on that wagon. We've agreed, at least we all know what we're talking about, but I think even just how we label it is uh, you, you clearly get, get people on one side or the other. I've got a piece of artwork in my office that is actually kind of the, the hockey stick diagram and it like a really interesting digitized version that I used on the cover of one of my books. And I had a, a colleague come in and look at it and, and he was like, wow, this is really cool. What is this mountains or what is it? I know he's a climate skeptic. And I said, no, that's the hockey stick graph. See how it, you know, does this and that. And he's like, oh, I don't like it. You know, so <laughs> I think it can be really contentious just how we have the conversation. And in a, in a response to that, something I've been finding to be more helpful is I find myself saying, let's not talk about the graph that goes on and on and then exponentially jumps up so high, like what you're descri describing, but actually let's focus more on systems and actually teaching planetary systems, because that's where we can get excited and, and really be curious and be interested in learning how the planet works. So I'm talking like the hydrological system, the carbon cycle, the all the different um, ways that energy is moving throughout our and our planet, and understand the role of the ocean and and like oh that's where we if we all could have a stronger literacy in systems, planetary systems, probably we're not even teaching climate change per se, but we are because we're helping people understand how the planet actually works and and people can get more excited about that. And it's, it's more, it's easier to be curious and interested, I think. Sherry, how do we engage different communities to focus on climate action? It kind of goes back to place-based learning and engaging uh, groups in issues where they live. And so I think both Shannon and Sarah have been really hitting that exactly on the head. And uh, I, as they've been talking, I've been thinking back on the, the doctoral program I just finished earlier this year in educational sustainability and how we, we delved into systems thinking 
uh, human systems, educational systems, community engagement systems, all kinds of systems. And my colleagues and my courses are not just teachers. They were people in all aspects of life, from healthcare to business and beyond. And so there's a lot of people out there who are who are really hungry for learning more about how they can fit some of this information and engagement into their own work and their own um, orbit, their own circle of influence, if you want to call it that. How can we engage the people around us? And um, speaking to Sarah's uh, work with the Environmental Action Civics, um, I wrote a curriculum on doing that, <laughs> uh, empowering students in their own school grounds. And so it's it's something that that we we can do, and I feel really positive about it. But it's it's meeting people where they are, and I think as more people become impacted by the the storms, by the drought. Um, by the poor gardening seasons that we've yeah. been having in the last <laughs> few years, where are all the tomatoes? You know, all of these things that they seem small, but they're impacting our lives, our culture, the way that, that we live, doing things that we've done for a long time. And now we can't do them anymore, or they're more uncertain, or they're more difficult. And so it's it's kind of starting to hit all of us in the face a little bit more that climate change is not something that's coming. It's not out there in the future. We're going to have to, you know, we better get ready because it's going to be here in 50 years and we better be ready. Well, it's here now. And so we're all seeing that a lot more. And so I think uh, we another thing we need to start really focusing on is is climate adaptation and climate resilience. And these things are already happening in the natural world. Our landscapes are already adapting. We're seeing plants and animals moving out of their traditional habitat ranges into new habitat ranges. They're doing this on their own. It's a matter of their own survival. And humans are, we're going to have to, you know, start working more on, on that ourselves in terms of what what are things that we can do to survive and thrive and not just uh, the wealthy of the wealthiest of us but all of us how can we all survive and thrive in the near future and beyond with with these changes that are are, are happening faster and faster I couldn't agree more uh, Shannon your department at KU offers an undergraduate certificate in climate change so tell us about that we do. Uh, this is actually something that a couple of us put together ugh, back in 2016. It's it's been around for a while, and um, as as is with most certificate programs, the idea is to have sort of a little bit of bling to put on your transcript to show I did some stuff in this particular area. So um, most certificates have like 12 or 13 credit hours, and that's what this one does. And there's there are two required courses, uh, one which is an atmospheric science slash geography course on climate and climate change. And that's, we could consider that kind of, here's the science of climate change. And the other required course is a class that I teach called environmental geopolitics, where we look at more of the political, social, cultural aspects of climate change and a bunch of associated things. And then the rest of the credit hours, those are each three credit hours. And so then you take, um, there'd be another couple of classes. And these are all courses offered by my department, like microclimatology, uh, glaciers and landscape, uh, remote sensing, environmental policy, human dimensions of global change. But as I said, we set this up in 2016. And things have changed quite a bit. And now what we're working on, we are working on, I'll, I'll spare you the, the drama of curricular changes at, in a university setting. Uh, but now what we want to do is open it up to allow electives from other departments and programs. Because as Sarah said, no one discipline can own 
the entirety of climate change. It just simply isn't realistic. So I'm going to be reaching out to colleagues in different departments who are teaching things like, uh, you know, climate fiction or art history, religious studies, urban planning, environmental health, food systems, climate justice, community resilience, these kinds of courses. We want to bring those into the climate change certificate. And that is to encourage students to see the breadth and to see that it's, it's very much a a sprawling issue that really touches on so many things, but also to see how they might want to specialize their own training and interests. Like, how can I get my arms around this? What's the way that's really interesting? Is it urban planning? Is it something else uh, that will help them kind of see, oh, yeah, I can see myself doing this kind of work. Um, but it's also to complement whatever their other major is. So this isn't like a full major. This is just sort of a certificate on top of whatever a student's major or minor might be. And uh, it's a pretty interesting program, and I think it does need to be updated. So that's what we're working on right now to kind of open it up a little bit more. That's exciting. Sherry, sure. yes. tell us about your work at Project Central. Well, I'm a teaching ecologist, which is a term that I coined to describe myself because it's kind of hard to describe what I do otherwise. But I work in the education and policy areas. I serve as a speaker specialist for the U.S. State Department's speaker program. And I've worked on different kinds of environmental education curriculum projects, um, community action projects, and uh, traveled to a lot of countries, training teachers, working with students, talking to NGOs about civic engagement and um, working with governments and business leaders, uh, all kinds of people trying to just further discussion, conversation, and ultimately action on climate change, but also biodiversity, water and waste management issues, which are all over the world. And um, yeah, different things like that. So um, that's, that's what I do. Sarah, tell us about Wild Rose Education. So I am Wild Rose Education. I'm an independent contractor and I work with lots of technical experts or ologists, as I like to call them, to help them do their outreach and education and communication stronger. Um, I'm really interested in the facilitation of how we do education, how we teach, and how people learn because time is short and we better be doing it well, whatever we're doing. And so I work with universities around the country and other science projects, including the Arctic. I'm part of an Arctic Ocean Science team as an outreach educator. I teach some courses specifically for teachers and do a, lot, a fair amount of teacher professional development uh, programming. And so some of that looks like specifically summer teacher courses at Western Colorado University in Gunnison. And one of those courses is a climate change course, specifically like how to teach about climate change across the disciplines. And others are more focused on water and rivers because that's where my background really is in watershed education. But I also serve as the Rocky Mountain Regional Cohort Leader for, um, for Climate Generation Summer Educator Institute. And there's, there's different cohorts all over the country. So every, there are others, um, but I, so I pull together educators from multi-state region, air, regional area to really collaborate and, and share resources and, and really support each other from at a, inspiration level and not just always with more resources, but just like, like becoming relational and friends. And, and that's really important in this work because it is so difficult. This work is difficult work, no matter what part of it you're part of. And the more, I, and so I spend a fair amount of time with that kind of that emotional support, um, social emotional learning, and really thinking about the whole person because educators are whole people as well. So I, I'm up to a lot of different things, but um, Wild Rose Education is based in Western Colorado in my little office here in Carbondale, but it's um, I do projects all over North America these days and sometimes beyond. Look me up. <laughs> Thank you. Where can listeners go to learn more about your work, Sarah? Uh, they can look more at just by Googling Wild Rose Education or wildroseeducation.com and um, send me an email. Be in touch. Perfect. Sherry, where can people go to learn more about your work, Project Central? Uh, you can go to my website, uh, which is uh, projcentral.co, 
And if you're interested in the curriculum that I mentioned, which is uh, free and available for anyone to use, it's called SCUBIO. And so uh, www.schoobio.earth. Thank you. Shannon, where can people go to learn more about your work? Well, I am at O'Lear at ku.edu, and the geography department website is geog.ku.edu, and I am listed under the people there. And I've also got a, uh, I developed a living flyer for my geographic in adventures in climate change class. And if you just Google um, geog 300, it, it's a little unwieldy to list off the whole URL, but if you just Google Geog 300 and my name, O'Lear, or Adventures in Climate Change, you'll find it. But that uh, explains a little bit about the class and the podcast that I use in the class. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners. We welcome your questions and feedback. You can learn more about the Climate Hour at climatehour.net. That's climatehour.net. This is the Climate Hour. I'm your host, Bob Grove. My name is Darnell. At the end of our hour, here's some environmental news for the week of February 5th. Inside Climate News reports, electrified transportation has passed renewable energy to become the world's largest category of energy transition investment. The transportation sector is a leading source of global carbon dioxide emission. And because of the long lives of vehicles, investment decision today will take a while to translate into emission reductions. Sustainability Action Newsletter reports, President Biden pauses on pending liquefied natural gas exports applications. This is one of the most significant actions ever taken by a U.S. president to stop the dangerous expansion of fossil fuels and protect environmental justice. Biden's announcement shows two things. One, the marches, petitions, and grassroots organization from frontline communities, youth, and their allies are working. And two, Biden is afraid his climate hypocrisy will cost him the election if he doesn't make real progress on fossil fuels. Climate Council reports, Missouri residents have a valuable new resource with Missouri Coalition for the Environment's Bill Tracker. You can sign up for notification of when bills change or are up for hearing. Read details on bills and use categories to track legislation. Check out MCG's Bill Tracker at moenvironment.org. EcoWatch reports. A new study has discovered that rivers that empty into oceans contain concentration of per and polyfluoral alkyl PFAS, also known as forever chemicals, high enough to indicate a worldwide issue. The increasing proportion of wastewater to freshwater leads to elevated PFAS concentrations. Wastewater, especially those coming from refinery facilities within industrial zones, have been found to be a point source. PFAS pollution. The researchers emphasize the need to address PFAS impacts through focus interventions, especially necessary in regions where industrial activities meet rivers. Truth Out reports, during the hottest year on record, Exxon reported a total of $36 billion in profits, the majority paid to shareholders, and Chevron took in $21.4 billion and paid out more than that amount to shareholders. Thanks for listening to Eco Radio KC. Please tune in again next week or listen to our podcast at any time. They paid paradise, put up a parking lot. This is Richard Mabian. Thank you for listening to Eco Radio KC on KKFI. 90.1 FM, Kansas City Community Radio. Eco Radio is brought to you each week by a team of collaborators, including me, Craig Lugo, Terry Wilking, Brent Rysdale, and Bob Grove. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and guests and not of KKFI and or the Midcoast Media Project. You can find our calendar and a podcast of each show on Eco Radio KC's Facebook page, as well as on our show page at kkfi.org.
And you can send inquiries and comments to our email at kkfi.org forward slash contact or message us on our Facebook page. Up next is Law and Disorder, followed by Fiesta Musicale. And to round out your day, stay tuned for Noche Magica. Our outro music is Big Yellow Taxi by Joni Mitchell. Don't it always seem to go That you don't know what you've got till it's gone They paid paradise, put up a parking lot Hi, this is Denny Lane. You're listening to Mike Murphy on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio.